Welcome to the Sunset Community Church Podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. It was uh, one year ago today that um, COVID cases were on the rise in our area. If you remember, we were one of the first uh, regions in the United States to get hit with COVID and have a first COVID death. And uh, it was daylight savings, which in case you didn't know, is next Sunday. Uh, but last year it was March 8th. And uh, we have Michael Stufflebeam preaching for us. And just a few days later, our leadership team was huddling virtually on the internet trying to figure out what to do as cases were rising and there was threats of shutting things down and we decided that we need to be safe. And I, I found an email I sent to the church uh, during that time, and I said to the church, hey, for the next couple of weeks, <laughs> we're not going to meet. Uh, little did we know, right? Um, but it is, uh, it, it's been a wild year. It's been a long year when we think about that. Um, but we have been, uh, we've seen God work in ways that we couldn't have expected. And, and that's the truth about our relationship with God is that sometimes he does things uh, in our lives that are really good but in the toughest seasons of our lives. And parts of our hearts get touched, right? It kind of takes us out of our comfort zone. And, um, I, you know, as a pastor, I get to hear lots of stories, both really good ones and really tough ones. And I know that's reflected in our church family as well. And um, just as we were singing that last song, what a declaration it is of the gospel. And I love that Lydia wrote that, that it's coming out of our, our shared experience as a church as well. And so... I'm grateful to be here. I don't take it for granted, uh, our ability to gather this morning. Um, We're in a series uh, called Kingdom Come, and uh, we're asking the question, what happens when we let Jesus rule and reign in our lives, in our families, in really every aspect of, of who we are? Last week, we asked the question, who am I? Big question, big topic. And we really just scratched the surface of that. And I heard from some of you this last week that said, honestly, I don't know who I am. I'm still trying to figure that out. And it's interesting. I was thinking about how, how, we, how we learn about kind of our uniqueness, right? And it happens in community uh, as we see, uh, as we're in relationship with people and we bump into each other and we have conflicts and, and we have celebrations and we, we learn about how we're oriented and what we're passionate about and, there's a, there's a lot in our, especially in our Western culture, trying to discover this through what we call personality tests. Has anybody ever taken a personality test for work, uh, for premarital stuff? Uh, I'm working on my master's degree right now. I have taken more personality tests in the last few years than I've ever taken. And it was, it was interesting. I, I took one this last week for a global leadership class that I'm in. And as I was taking it, I go, man, this feels really familiar, but don't they all, right? <laughs> And at the end, when I finished it, and we were presenting our findings in the class, I realized, oh, I have taken this before. And so I pulled out the book that this particular test came from and compared my results from like two years ago to just this last week. And they were really different. And it got me thinking like, man, how has COVID, how has this season affected me, right? But the other thing I thought, that, and this is true, is personality tests don't define us, right? We, we, we look to things to define us and say, oh, this is who I am, but that's not what God does. God says, no, let me tell you who you are. 
Let me speak life into you and vision into you. And so last week we asked that question, who am I? And we started with the very basic truth that each of us were made in God's image. But then we looked at the next basic truth, which is that image has been broken and corrupted in our rejection of God in the way that we live and this sin nature that we all have. So we found that answer last week in, in the Word of God. Genesis 1 shows us the big picture. This is why Jesus came. He came to, to, to show us that what we have, what we do, what we desire, those are not the most important things about who we are. And so Jesus came to invite us to rediscover our true identity. He came to invite us into his family, into his kingdom. So when Jesus announces his arrival, you might remember this from when we started our series, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, many street preachers and pastors have used repent as a bludgeon, right? To, to beat people over the head, to make them feel guilty and ashamed for the way that they're living. But that's not what this means. This is an invitation to think differently, to live differently, to enter back into relationship with God, the one that he's always desired to have with you, to discover your true identity as his son and his daughter. And so as we continue in our series on the kingdom of God, we're going to ask the question, this morning, that's really the subtitle of our series. It's maybe kind of hard to see on this slide, so I'll highlight it for you. What happens when we let Jesus rule and reign in our lives? And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to get very practical. Today, specifically, we're going to ask this question as it relates to our sexuality. And in the weeks to come, we're going to build on that. Next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be single? <laughs> How does my singleness uh, align with the kingdom of God? What, is it, what does my marriage look like as, as a kingdom participant? What does my family look like? But today, we're going to start with this question because it's one that the culture has made of the utmost importance. And so before we do that, I want to pray that we hear from the Lord this morning, not from me, okay? So let's pray together. Father, we, we, we need to understand your heart, not the narrative that we've developed and, and built up that you're a, a, a Zeus-like character sitting on a cloud waiting for us to make a mistake, or that we have to have all our things in order before we can know you and be known by you. Lord, we want to know the true you, the one that loves us, the one that pursues us, <laughs> the one that sees all of our mistakes and yet was willing to die for us. And so, Lord, as we look at these topics today and in, in the weeks to come, uh, I pray that we would understand the call of repentance as a good thing, as a life-giving decision to follow you, to be whole, to be fulfilled, and to truly know who we are. And so would you speak to us this morning through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our, our world has a problem. Uh, and the, it's a sex problem. And, and there's no escaping this problem. Uh, the old adage says that sex sells. Maybe you've heard that before. And so for years we've seen in marketing how sexualized images are used to attract people to a product. What does that say then about sex? 
It's also a product. Our world has a sex problem because now we have access to illicit videos and images like no other generation, no other people in history ever have had access to. Our world has a sex problem when almost every uh, popular series on TV or Netflix has to include sexual scenes. Why is that? And even in the church, we have rationalized these things and consume these things and say to ourselves, well, that's not going to affect me when it does. Our world has a sex problem, but this is not a new issue with humanity. And God addresses from the very beginning the brokenness of sex and sexuality that has its origins in that first sin in the garden. And so God addresses this, this brokenness throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus addresses it throughout his ministry in the New Testament, and the early church addresses it as well. Why would this be? Because the original and very good design of God has been devastatingly broken and corrupted by sin. Now, I understand this morning, this is a a massive topic that we're going to cover in a very short amount of time. And even though the Bible has a lot to say on this, probably more than you realize, if we're honest, most of us have been discipled on our view and understanding of sex more by the culture, more by the world than we have by the word, than the one who actually created and designed sex in the first place. So I want to say briefly where we're going to go this morning as we look at this text, or as we look at this topic. First, we're going to look at God's design from the beginning and see what that looks like. Then we're going to see how Jesus' teaching and ministry are rooted in that design. Then we're going to see how the early church was rooted in that same design. And after all that, hopefully, we're going to have our eyes opened a little bit to see how our culture is doing everything it can to lead us away from God's design. Now, we're not going to be able to cover it all. I'm not going to cover it all in this short message. Um, but as we've been doing in recent weeks, we're going to have a Q&A time right after the message. And I encourage you to stick around with your specific questions that may not get covered today. If you're watching online, which I know a, a good number of folks still are, um, we are not live streaming that Uh, but you'll have an opportunity to send in emails or texts, and I can either answer those to you specifically, or if you send them in anonymously, I can cover them in a a later blog. But this is something we don't want to just throw out and then move on, because I know there's things that will be stirred up. So, let's look then at the beginning. If God designed this, then he probably has something to say about it. Genesis 1 starts with this panorama of creation of all of creation, and it includes male and female, how they reflect God, how they are to rule over the earth, and how they are to populate the earth, and also how male and female were made for each other. Genesis 1 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in this panorama, sexual differences between man and woman have a purpose. A purpose to be carried out. 
And the purpose is really simply, as we just read, to populate the earth. God says to rule the earth, but you can't do that from one location. So you need to have babies. You need to spread out from location to location. You need to multiply. So Genesis 1 starts with this kind of big panorama of creation and humanity's place in it. But then Genesis 2 zooms in a little bit more, starting with man. Now let me say, up to this point, each day of creation ended with, it is good. Day one, day two, day three, it is good. But then man comes along, just man at this point. And God says, it's not good. (laughs) Something is missing. It's not good for man to be alone, specifically is what God says. And so the account of Genesis continues, and God creates man out of woman. Woman out of man, I should say. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So in this same way, woman is like man as an image bearer and with the same role to play on the earth. But she is also different in man in that she compliments him. It's not good for him to be alone. I need to make him a companion. And so it's in this complementary nature of their relationship that we see man and woman come together as husband and wife through sexual union. As the narrative continues, it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his flesh, or united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The union of man and woman is a reuniting in a way, as woman was taken out of man, and it's meant to be beautiful and enjoyable and a deeply meaningful act of love. But, but did you notice the change in language here in this statement this statement is actually being made for us it goes from man talking about his relationship with woman to then an explanation of why this is to be so we see from the very beginning of creation man and woman were made for each other God's design was perfect as were the desires that he gave them for each other. God, in a way, officiated the first wedding when he made woman there in the garden. And it's important to note here that man and woman were sexual before they were sinful. They were sexual before they were sinful. There was this intended design and and, and purpose of flourishment and enjoyment, of fulfillment of God's purpose to rule the earth, but also in the context of this beautiful complementary relationship. So we know eventually sin comes in. You know the rest of the story, right? And sin does what sin always does, is it pollutes and corrupts everything. And so if you've read the rest of the Genesis account, you see how it affects humanity. It affects first the relationship of Adam and Eve with each other, but then it affects their kids. I mean, at one point, one of their kids kills the other kid. It affects the way that work is done on the earth. It affects the very earth itself. Sin works in this way. 
And so how would God respond to the corruption of His good and perfect design? Well, first, we know that God immediately comes up with a rescue plan for humanity. Even though humanity has rejected Him in His ways, He's not done yet. He loves them. He pursues them. And so He comes up with a rescue plan. But in the meantime, until that rescue plan is going to be implemented, He has to give some instructions to his creation, to make some things really clear on how they are to live now that they've rejected his ways. And so he puts some laws in place to point them to the original design, to help preserve the purity of what he's created, both in their marriage and in their sexuality. So if you're familiar, and some years later, God gives these laws to his people. You're familiar maybe with the Ten Commandments, And one of the laws that we see in there is directly connected to the brokenness of marriage and of sin, of sexuality. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Why would this be placed in there? Because clearly God's original design has been broken. There is no need to say this, this to Adam and Eve in the garden, but once sin came in, sexual desire instead turned into sexual license. Instead of being a beautiful expression of marriage, it becomes about satisfying my need for pleasure, for fulfillment, for intimacy. And this is what sin does. If you don't think sin corrupts things or makes us take something that was meant for good and use it for evil, well, just hang out with some toddlers for an afternoon, right? If you give some toddlers some paint for paper, they're immediately going to think, what else could I put this on, right? You can say, this is just for the paper, but it's going to end up on the walls and on the carpet, on the doorways. You give them some delicious food, instead of putting it in their mouth, they're going to experiment and put it in their nose and put it in their ears. And we laugh at these things, but we do the same thing. God gives us beautiful things, and we use them in ways that he never intended for them to be used. I heard this story once of this, this mom who had, had told her friends and family she was never going to let her son play with guns. Guns are evil, she said. No, no boy of mine is going to play with a gun. And while she was telling this story to one of her friends that came over, her son ran into the room with the leg that he had torn off of a doll, and he shot his mom with it. Bang! <laughs> the reality is, is he was going to do what he wanted to do, right? You could keep this from me, but I'm still going to figure out a way to do it. And so when we think about the God's good and perfect design, we are prone to be just like that. We take those things and we use them how we're not to use them. And so why does God have to give us these laws? Maybe you've read them before and you go, man, what is up with this? Because he loves us. And because we're in sin, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. He says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, there's a big understanding here. This is talking about, though, the rescue plan that God has for humanity. And the seed and promise are Jesus. While sin has broken humanity... In the meantime, God has put these laws to show us what is good and right, but he knows that we're unable to fulfill those laws to be perfect and to be without sin, and so Jesus comes. Jesus comes to lead us into forgiveness for our sins. 
and to the truth and the way that he would want us to live. So to recap, God's design from the very beginning, man and woman, as the image of God, complementing each other, enjoying each other, flourishing by creating more image bearers of God. But sin acts like poison in the water. And so what is meant to be good in life-giving becomes toxic and corrupt. So what would Jesus say about sexual desire and sexuality in general? Well, first, it's important to know because our current narrative tries to detach the teachings of Jesus from the laws of God in the Old Testament. It's important to know that the message of Jesus was never detached from the laws of God. In fact, Jesus took many of those same laws and he went beyond the surface behavior right to the heart of the matter, even deeper with them, to where sin actually lives. In speaking of this command, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, right? Seventh commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus takes this law that he authored, because he is God, and he goes right to the heart of the issue. Later on in Matthew 19, Jesus is discussing the topic of sexual fidelity with the Pharisees who are trying to figure out ways to divorce their wives without it being considered a sin. (laughs) And again, Jesus points back to the created order in Genesis chapter 2 as a foundation for God's design. And in doing that, Jesus both reaffirms God's design of marriage, but he also affirms how sexual desire is to be rooted in the context of marriage exclusively. And Jesus' understanding then carries forward with it into the early church in teachings to those churches that in cities like Corinth and Rome, Thessalonica, Corinthians, to all the churches that exist in these cities where sex is being used outside of God's design, outside of the idea of committed marriage between a man and a woman. And so the commands of Jesus permeate the early church. And there's this, there's this movement to recapturing God's design and to avoiding what the biblical authors time and again called sexual immorality. And one of the reasons they have to give these commands is because some of these cities, a city like Ephesus, sex is actually even rooted in pagan worship. And so it is so corrupt. It is so toxic. In the New Testament writings, whenever you see the word sexual immorality, the original word for that is the word pornea. If that sounds familiar, it's where we get the word pornography from. And pornea literally is a catch-all phrase for anything that is not part of God's design as it relates to sexuality and sex. So any kind of sexual activity that is not rooted in a committed, faithful marriage is against that design. And so the church wrestles with this just as we have to wrestle with it in our culture and society today. This is not a new issue. And it is why it is mentioned. So this really shouldn't be shocking. It feels weird to even say this. But in our post-truth culture, 
It shouldn't be shocking to, to understand that Jesus clearly affirms the command of sexual purity and roots it firmly in the design of marriage between one man and one woman. A design that he as God created, but that sin has distorted for all of us. Now, here's where we have to deal with that postmodern mentality that has come into our culture today. People would say, well, if you, if you hold up this ideal as a God's ideal, then how, how can you point to truth and still love people? Especially people that aren't living that truth. Aren't you against them when you say these things? But it's not true. It is possible to point to truth and still deeply care and love for people. Jesus is not anti-anybody. He is for us. And in his call to repent, his desire is to then reorient us towards his truth, to what is best for our lives, because he cares. Can you imagine a friend that said they loved you and cared about you, but didn't warn you of some behavior that was going to lead to your destruction? That's not caring and loving. Jesus' heart is for us. And so that brings us back to this, this design of sex. It is meant to be fruitful and flourishing. Yes, fruitful. Yes, for making babies, but flourishing, part of the enjoyment of a healthy marriage relationship. But in our overly sexualized culture, this is not the context that we see sex displayed and sexuality presented in. Instead, in our culture, sex is almost always centered on power and self-pleasure. And this was, again, the case in Jesus' day, and it's still true for us today. In fact, the driving force of the American sexual ethic is focused almost exclusively on my self-pleasure. It's all about me. This isn't just a small corruption of God's design. It is a complete disregard for it. And here's the thing. Most of us have been influenced and even discipled by the world's sinful view of sex and sexuality more than we have God's design. And whether we're heterosexual or same-sex attracted, we have, all of us, distorted and corrupted sexual desires as it relates to our sexuality that need to come under the kingship of Jesus and to be restored, to be renewed. In the meantime, in our culture, the concept of truth has become fluid. What is true? Our identity has become fluid. People have become more and more confused about who they are and what their purpose is. And this then extends to the ways that we live. And so in our culture, we see that sexuality, along with truth and identity, have become so fluid that nobody knows what the purpose is anymore. It's about my desire in the moment, I guess. So when Jesus says to repent and to come into the kingdom of God, it's easy to nod our head when it's abstract. But what if he's talking about this area of our lives? What if he's saying our sexuality and our sexual desire, we need to repent of those things and we need to bring those under his lordship to be a part of his kingdom? How then will we respond when it's that specific, that personal? 
What we see in our culture right now is that the gift of sex has instead become the identity of sex. As a result, sex is always before us. You can hardly go anywhere on the internet without seeing sexualized content. You can hardly find a movie or a TV series on Netflix that doesn't have some depiction of sex. And do we think we're not being discipled by the culture on these things? Of course we are. So as a result, sex is always before us as it becomes the identity of our culture. And then because of that, there's this innate kind of thing that's been spoken through these things that says our desire should always be fulfilled. If you have a desire, you need to fulfill it. Whatever it is. And then sexual license has increased. And this again goes back to the garden when Satan was speaking to Eve and said, did God really say that? And so now even in our churches, we look at God's word where it plainly lays out his design and we go, I'm sure there's a way around this somewhere because I have this desire. So my desire has to be true, the most true thing about me. Instead of, man, my desire has to come under the design and the lordship of God. So all of us are being discipled on sex by the culture, Christian and non-Christian alike. And there's these lies of the culture. There's these, these ways to indulge in these things. And so we have something now called hookup culture, which has made sex as no different than going to get a cheeseburger. I'll just go find this person, do this thing, and that's it. We have people that instead of having, reserving sex for marriage, they have no problem with having sex outside of a committed marriage. Even within the church, there's justification now for that. And what we find in this, these lies of the culture is ultimately what the media portrays culture or sex to be is not true. But we've believed that it is. All of these things lead us to addiction and to brokenness. But the ways of the kingdom bring us back to biblical truths. That sex is a gift from God, but there are wrong ways to use it. That sex is a gift, but there are also many other ways to find fulfillment. The kingdom connection here for us is that while the law was set up to, to show us where we fall short, Jesus came to lead us into righteousness and freedom. So in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, hey, if you even think, are even thinking of someone lustfully, you're as guilty as somebody who's committed adultery. He's intentionally doing three things when he says that. One is he's leveling the playing field. Has anybody had an impure thought? Guess what? You're a sinner. Whether it's a heterosexual impure thought or a homosexual impure thought. If you've had one, you're as guilty as anybody else. Oh, that's harsh. But why is Jesus doing that? Because then he's letting us know that there is someone who can save us from that sin, who can forgive us from that sin, who can heal us from that sin that we participated in. And in doing that, Jesus is setting the table to meet each of us right where we're at. 
You remember the story of the woman at the well? Five husbands. The one she was living with was not her husband. Jesus calls this out to her. But what does he do? He reveals the truth of the kingdom to her. And it changes her life. So Jesus, when he he speaks these things, don't buy the narrative of angry God. It's leveling the playing field, saying, hey, we're all in this. We all have sin. We all need a Savior. We all need to be restored and renewed in our mind. And so it's vital to know that right where you are this morning, God didn't make you broken. God didn't make you broken. Sin does that. Jesus loves you. He wants to meet you in your brokenness and to lead you to wholeness. One more story of Jesus interacting with somebody that was caught in sexual sin is the story of the woman caught in adultery and the religious leaders were gathered around her with a stone and boy, does that feel familiar. Has the church done that? Yeah, we have. The religious leaders are gathered around her ready to stone her according to the law. And Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, feel free to do it if you are without sin too. Now I'll leave and Jesus reaches down to her and this is the compassionate heart of Jesus. And he says, where have your accusers gone, woman? She says, they're gone. And he says, I'm not accusing you either. I'm not condemning you. He meets her where she's at in her sin. But this is what he does, because this is important. He doesn't pat her on her back and say, have a good life. Keep living that way. He says, no, I'm not condemning you. But there's a better way. Repent. Again, repent sounds weird to us in our current mind. Turn away. Have a, different, have a change of mind about the way you're living. Repent. Jesus loves people. And if Jesus loves people that are lost in their sexual identity or they're battling sexual sin, then church, we have to do the same. And we haven't always done a great job with this. And we've seen this reflected especially with the LGBTQ community. In fact, many folks, many Christian folks on the issue have looked and sounded a lot more like somebody with a stone in their hand than they have like Jesus. So it's important to know as we look at this topic that God doesn't ever say no to something without saying yes to something even better. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are saying that we trust him, we trust his design and his purpose for our lives, that it is the best. And this is what life in the kingdom offers us a trusting God who loves us. And I know that from just from a statistical standpoint, that sexual sin and sexual brokenness has affected many of us in this room in a variety of different ways. But I also know that with that sin also comes so many other thoughts that affect our identity. We may think, oh man, I'm the only one. It's like this. Or if, if people knew this about me. And so with this type of thinking comes immense shame and isolation. And this is where I want you to know that Jesus is better than you can imagine. 
The Bible says that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And I'll just share one last story that Jesus told. It's a story I actually heard referenced earlier this morning. It's a story of this son who had it all. He, he had the perfect life. He had all that he would ever need. But there was one thing for him that he didn't have, total autonomy. He wanted to be out from under his father's influence. So he goes to his dad and he says, I want everything that you would have given me when you died. I want it now. And I want to go. So his father says, okay, here you go. You know this story. The, the son goes out and he lives like he wants to live. No constraints, led by the moment, his desires ruling him. And everything that he had had under his fa- in his father's house was gone in an instant. And through this brokenness and this shame, he thinks, man, the only chance I have is to crawl back and ask to be maybe a servant in my father's house. I can imagine as Jesus is telling this story, the thoughts that are going through people's heads as they're hearing it. Man, they could relate to it. And the Bible records Jesus telling the story, and it says that when the son was a long ways off, the father saw him coming to return. And he was so excited about this that he threw a party for him. And as the son came up, ready to just beg for a servant position in the household, the father says, shh. (laughs) My son who was once lost is found. He's been returned to me. When we think about our own lives, this is Jesus' view of you. You are a long way off and you may feel so far from him because of the way that you've lived, the things you've indulged with. But Jesus sees you and he is celebrating your return even before you see him. He is better than you can imagine. His kindness, his mercy, and his truth. He doesn't approach you with an unapproving condemnation, but a scandalous grace, ready to forgive and to restore. And Jesus is not scared of or surprised by your sin. No, he died for it. And he wants you to be whole and fulfilled and truly free. This is what repentance is about. This is what the kingdom offers for all of us. So what happens when I let Jesus rule and reign over my sexual desire, my sexuality? Well, shame and guilt are removed. Freedom is found. And the longing that the world is trying to offer you in fulfillment outside of God's design Well, that's truly and fully found in the kingdom of God as his sons and as his daughters. I'm going to pray for us to that end this morning. Father, huge topic, but one that is near to your heart because you are near to those that are broken and you see the state of our world. You see the young child that's been exposed to pornography because of a smartphone and immediately has a view that is distorted and corrupted. You see the young man and the young woman that are wrestling with their sexual identity. 
not sure what it all means. You know and have compassion for those that have been abused and harmed. Those that are living double lives, Lord. None of this surprises you. And your approach with all of it, Lord, is the same. Repent. There's a better way. There's freedom. There's forgiveness. There's healing. But we hold you at arm's length. We think that you're not capable. We think that if people knew this about me, what would they think? Lord, I pray that you would break through those lies, that your heart of compassion and kindness would be known. And Lord, you'd start with us, your church, that we would not be the stone throwers, but we would be the people that wade right into the mess and say, there is a better way. Come, let me introduce you to Jesus who knew you from the moment you were born, who designed you, who has a purpose for you. So Father, may we consider this question, what happens when we let you rule and reign in our life? And may we be willing to humble ourselves, to come to you in all our brokenness and say, Lord, have your way. A long way off, the father saw the son and he began to rejoice at his coming. Not looking disapprovingly, not going, I told you so. Saying, my son has returned. Lord, may we know that heart, your father's heart for us in this, in this time and with this topic, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.